Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed that I can really connect with people over a meal. It's so different than just sitting down with someone and not sharing anything. But if I sit with someone and I have a cup of coffee or we have something to eat, it always feels like the connection is a little bit deeper. And I think there's something to be said about this, right? Because let's even look at communion, which the original communion that was instituted by Jesus and his disciples was a meal. It wasn't just the, the cracker and the grape juice. It was much more than that. It was a divine meal shared amongst friends. And I think throughout the Bible, we see that there's this intimacy that happens when a meal is shared. And I think for those of us who are trying to navigate the adversity that we're facing, sometimes we might find our answers at the dinner table. We might find our answers as we engage the person across from us. In December of 2020, Kendall, she faced a dilemma. The kitchen that housed her business, which was a bread subscription company, they told her that she no longer had access to their space. She's right in the middle of the pandemic. What does she do next? Today, I'm joined by Kendall Vanderslice. She is a baker, a writer, and the founder and executive director of the Edible Theology Project. She has written two books, We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God, and By Bread Alone. Kendall, welcome to the Mercy Cast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And so I'm so intrigued by your story because so many of us, 2020 was not exactly a stellar <laughs> year for us. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of awkwardness. There was a lot of sitting in your pajamas on Zoom meetings, hoping someone didn't notice that you're kind of phoning it in. I mean, you're Zooming it in, but you're phoning it in because... Do we really have any more energy to do anything else? Tell me about what was going through your mind when the kitchen says, no soup for you. <laughs> you, you are no longer here. It's time for yeah. you to go. You don't, have to go, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> to back up a little bit of what kind of led to this moment, I a year before the pandemic hit in May of 2019, I released my book, We Will Feast, which was all about the importance of community, all about the importance of eating together. And I spent months traveling the country, speaking to churches about it's really vital that we share meals together, that we sit at the same table together, that we live our lives in embodied community together. And so I, I also started this bread subscription company as a way to help churches do that, to connect their daily bread to the bread they share at communion. And so kind of all the build up to the pandemic, I was helping people think about the importance of these these in-person relationships. And then suddenly March 2020 hits and that all becomes impossible. We can't gather together again. But at sort of a ironic, an, an ironic move of that moment was that the value of bread and the importance of baking and the ways that it can kind of connect us on a mysterious level became really apparent. Everyone started baking bread again. And and I no longer had to convince people there's something really magical, but also something deeply spiritual about bread baking. And so 2020 was kind of this strange year for me where in some ways my work was really challenged because what I considered to be the most important thing about our lives and community became impossible. And yet also 
there was a sort of communal understanding of the importance of the kind of work that I was doing. And so when December kind of rolls around and the kitchen I'd been baking out of, it finally felt like things were picking up. It finally felt I am able to merge my writing and my baking and my working with churches in my own community, but also churches nationally. It felt like everything's cohering. And then suddenly the kitchen tells me, hey, you can't use this space anymore. It felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. I felt like I'd seen the ways that God was piecing things together. And then suddenly it was like, wait a minute, what is next? Where do I go? How do I, what am I supposed to do when I can't bake bread for people anymore? What am I supposed to do when I can't bake bread for people anymore? It's like, what is our purpose when we can't do the thing that we want to do? I felt like that was so many of us during that time. And that's a lot of us now. So many things seem to be connected to our purpose, right? If we're in our purpose, we're happier. We feel more attuned. We feel more connected. But if for some reason things aren't as they should be, then all of a sudden we feel lost. We're wandering in this wasteland and not trying to make it too overly dramatic. But we seem to feel better when we feel like we're producing or at least living in accordance with our purpose. And to do that, you first have to know what your purpose is and what you want your purpose to be. And you knew that. You had this desire to start this thing where you were helping people connect in person. You were helping them engage each other. And then big bad pandemic comes through and says, (laughs) no, you are not allowed. You are not allowed to have friends. You are not. You now have a mediator and it is a screen. And so that changes things. But then one of the things you keyed in on is, Everyone and their sister was making sourdough (laughs) bread or like some kind, like everybody was making bread. People that have never baked in their lives are like, look at me, I'm making bread. Now bread has become everyone's purpose. (laughs) And it was like, it was fascinating. There were so many like reels and TikToks of look at this bread and look at it. And it's like, I started cooking for like the first time in my life, like cooking real meals. I had that HelloFresh, feel free to sponsor us (laughs) HelloFresh. I had that HelloFresh subscription and every day that was my purpose. And I would start hours out. I'm like, I'm going to make the best meal in the world today. But it reconnected me to something that was almost primal. It was taking care of myself and other people and through means. And I love how on one hand, the pandemic kind of threw you for a loop. But on the other hand, things actually expanded for you. And then all of a sudden you find out, nope, you can't work here. (laughs) What was your next step after that? Because that had to be disorienting. Yeah, it was. It was absolutely very disorienting. I had all along been in this tension between baking bread that served my in-person community, my own city of Durham, North Carolina, and yet at the same time, writing for a broader audience, a national and, and sometimes international audience, and wondering, how do I merge this deep commitment to my in-person community, but also my desire to reach a much broader community. And so I decided, well, we're all in our homes. We're all learning how to bake bread. What if instead of just using my energy to bake bread for my community, I lead workshops and teach other people how to bake bread? And so the kind of first next step was I started teaching virtual bread baking workshops. And the workshop was not just how to bake bread, but how to bake bread as a spiritual practice. I called the workshop Bake and Pray and trying to help people understand that you can bake bread, but you can also pray through this process of baking bread. And then I had been working on, as I was baking, I was 
looking at stories of bread and scripture and trying to learn what is it that God is teaching us through bread all throughout the narrative of scripture. And so I started putting together this Bible study that looked at different stories of bread in the gospels. And so by the time my bakery closed, I had a huge push of people who ordered over the holidays. The last few weeks right before I closed, just had a massive sales push that supported me for a couple of months into the new year. And so I knew I had a couple of months of runway to try and get these workshops and this curriculum off the ground. And so that is how my organization, the Edible Theology Project, was born. I like to tell people that I feel like I walked backwards into a room to start an organization, that it was kind of like I I had this curriculum, I had this workshop, I had these kind of materials, and I had the need to just support myself. <laughs> um, and I knew that my materials and my research would be really valuable to uh, the church in that present moment of the pandemic, but also in the months and years to come. And so I just sort of started putting things out there to meet these needs. And then kind of several months in, I had to take stock of like, what is this thing? What is it that God has called me to steward? And where do we go from here? I love how you take this idea of baking. And a lot of people would just bake for necessity, right? Like we need bread. And to be honest, before the pandemic, people weren't baking bread. I'm not sure anyone had ever baked bread before the pandemic. I don't have any <laughs> evidence that people had ever baked bread. I think you just bought it at the store and it was at the store. That's You just pick it up. It's magically at the store. You get it. But I love how you're saying, no, like I'm going to tie you into this tradition that's been going on for millennia and people have always had an intimate connection with their food. And then through that intimate connection with their food, they're connected to other people. And then you center on this idea of communion, our experience of God, as we are taking this sacred meal, where some people believe that it's only symbolic, others see God present. But regardless of whether you see God present in the elements or it's just a symbol, you see God communicating to us in a very rich way through very ordinary means. I love how you can take something that has been done since basically the advent of mankind and say, okay, how does this become a spiritual act? And how would you encourage people to see this mundane thing, like making bread, as a spiritual activity? I think first we have to slow down and realize what a miracle it is that we eat at all, that all of our food, all of our eating is made possible through this very sort of miraculous process of growing. You plant a seed and that seed over time sprouts and becomes the crop that then produces the fruit or the vegetable or the grain that we can eat or that we can transform into a form that we can eat. And so our food is always a gift. Uh, it is always made possible because God has ordered the world in such a way that the crops can grow, that the rain will fall and will nourish the soil and will help that, that seed to sprout and bring forth vegetation, that the ability to eat is this miraculous process, and that also the ability to eat is inherently a communal process. Our food, by the time it reaches us, has been touched by so many pairs of hands, by the farmers or the gardeners who planted it and harvested it 
oftentimes by the grocery store clerks who, who put it out, perhaps those who deliver it, those who, if you've ordered through Instacart or something, those who have chosen it and put it into your bag and brought it to you. And if you are eating prepared food, the hands that have prepared that food and brought it to you, so many people are involved in the process of bringing our food to our table. And even if you have planted all of your own food in your own garden and you harvested it all yourself and cooked it yourself and your food has never touched another pair of human hands, it still required the work of ants and bees and earthworms and microbes. We can never eat in isolation. The process of eating is always this miraculous and communal act. And so I think first taking a moment to just pause and recognize the beauty of all that is entailed in bringing our food to our table is kind of the first step in in understanding any type of cooking or eating as a way of communing with God and understanding God's love for us and God's graciousness towards us. And then after that, once you have sort of taken a moment to marvel at the amazingness of what it is to get the ingredients to your kitchen, to then once again slow down and to pay attention to the sensation of the process of baking bread, the gift that it is to be humans in human bodies that have the senses of taste and touch and smell, to pay attention to what we feel in our fingers, what we smell with our noses, what we hear with our ears as we bake this bread, and use that as an opportunity to give thanks to God once again for the gift of this food, but also the gift of our senses. And then as we bake, to use the motions of our bodies as an opportunity for prayer. My favorite is to incorporate breath prayer. So breath prayer is a practice of repeating a line of scripture or poetry or just a prayer with every inhale and exhale. So my sort of favorite is my soul finds rest in God alone. And so with every inhale, you say my soul finds rest. And with every exhale, you say in God alone. And perhaps when you're first getting started, you can say these lines, you can breathe these prayers out loud, or you can say them in your mind with each breath as you move. And over time, as you get into this habit of breathing through praying with each movement of your body, you begin to understand how the act of breathing and the act of moving itself is a form of prayer and that we can rest in the presence of God through the motions of our body and through this process of this participation in this miraculous process of creating something delicious to eat like bread. You mentioned recognizing that in a sense we're created for community. You talk about this communal process, how there are so many people connected to what we're consuming. In a sense, taking us out of the driver's seat and showing us that this is way more than a mere transaction. I have hunger. I feel that need. It's you're part of this elaborate process, this sacred dance, if you will. Like, I mean, there's so many people who are involved in providing what, what we receive. I lead a nonprofit called Let My People Go. And we work to help churches really understand who are their neighbors who are most vulnerable to global injustices like human trafficking. And we want to help them engage those neighbors. And I tell them, first of all, before we can even be part of the solution to something like human trafficking, we have to understand that we're part of the problem and that we have unseen neighbors 
that are consistently working to provide us the things that we crave. And if we are unaware of maybe where our products come from or supply chains, we can be unintentionally pushing a narrative that with our mouths we say that we're against, but with our purchases we say that we're absolutely for and we need more of. And so I love how you're saying, no, this is a communal event and we need to understand and recognize that there are other people involved in what we eat and what we enjoy. But you also talk about this idea of slowing down. You talk about gratitude (laughs) and prayer and you mentioned the simple breath prayers. But really what I love about your approach is it seems to me, you please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you're saying rather than using food, rather than eating to survive, you're thinking through, no, what does it mean to thrive? Absolutely. From the very beginning of scripture, humans were created with two really basic needs. One is the need to get nutrition and energy from food. And the other is to share our lives with other human beings. The only thing that was not called good in this early narrative of Genesis was a human being alone. And we could have, God could have created humans in a way that we got our nutrition and energy from lots of other forms. You know, we could have had root systems like trees that could pull up nutrients out of the soil, or we could have had skin that could convert energy from the sun, like, like leaves when they're chlorophyll. And instead of giving us chlorophyll or root systems, God gave us tongues with taste buds and tables. God gave us the means to enjoy and find delight in food and also gave us this ability to meet our need for uh, community, to share our lives with other human beings through the same process that meets our need for nutrition and energy from food. And both of them are this deeply pleasurable, delightful process. Um, So food is a gift from God. The need for food, our hunger for food, and our enjoyment in food is a gift from God. And it is a gift to be able to enjoy that process. Yeah. And I honestly, I don't see it as a gift that much. Like when I'm driving through the McDonald's drive-thru, it doesn't feel like a gift that I really (laughs) want, right? That's what you're saying is food is way more than sustenance. You know, you talk about those two needs. There is nutrition. And I'm just going to say, I I know this might hurt some people, but fast food may not be the most nutritious (laughs) option out there. So I I don't know. I think think at the end of the day, though, like we have that nutrition piece, but we also, we find our purpose when we're sharing our lives with others. You know, one of my favorite books ever, especially on this topic, is a book called The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farr Capon. Um, and Father Capon is, he was an Episcopal priest, but he was also a food writer. Um, and he was also a satirical, he and his wife wrote a satirical column together. And so The Supper of the Lamb is kind of the perfect merging of his theological writing, his food writing, and also his humor. Um, and there's this spectacular chapter near the beginning Um, that's all about an onion. And it's this exercise for cutting an onion. And it takes probably, I've had people who've like read the book and followed the exercise and they took a full hour, I think, in order to go through all the steps of cutting the onion and observing all of these layers of the onion and the image within the onion and and what it says about sort of the beauty of God's nature. And then near the end of the chapter is my personal favorite line of the whole thing, 
he says, now cut four more. And it's just this beautiful juxtaposition of, you know, there is so much beauty woven into something as simple as an onion. And also at the end of the day, this dish calls for four onions and we can't take an hour to cut each one (laughs) that, you know, there is this like magnificence of God woven into all of creation, especially in the process of eating. And also we just have to meet our nutritional needs. Sometimes you're cooking and you have your kids pulling at your sleeves, asking when dinner's going to be ready. And you know that your toddler has boycotted anything but chicken nuggets. And that's that's what you've got to do. You've got to throw the chicken nuggets in the microwave because that's how you meet the needs that are present in front of you. And not, you know, we we have to eat three times a day, not every meal. It is an opportunity to slow down and and recognize the goodness of God and this gift of food. And at the same time, it is just such a necessary part of our lives that we can't just, you know, observe every detail of it every single time. And I love how you just quoted Capon because I've always been a fan of Robert Farrar Capon and just the things that he has written, there's this earthy element to what he writes. There's this, he's very funny, he's sarcastic, he's witty. And a lot of people who read his more theological texts may not even understand that he was a food writer. <laughs> he was. And, and I mean, he was, he was a food writer for a... For the like, New York like, Times. Yeah, the New York Times. Like, yeah, I actually was just flipping through my New York Times cooking app the other day, and I found a recipe that was attributed to him. So his, his recipes are still up in their archive. One of our past guests, David Zoll, he wrote a book called Low Anthropology. His organization, Mockingbird, actually publishes Capon's yeah, yeah. works. And so, yeah, big fan. And I love how you just quoted him because I once heard a phrase, and I don't like the phrase. I don't like this phrase at all. <laughs> I do not think it's a helpful saying, especially to put on someone. But when people say, well, that person's so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I don't like it. But I think there is a principle that I believe if we are heavenly minded, we will be earthly good. But as we're reflecting on these deep theological constructs, you still have four more onions to cut. I mean, (laughs) you can't just, you're you're not going to be present in every moment. But I do love the idea of every now and then we're able to kind of tap back into just what a miracle life is, what a miracle food is, what a miracle communion with God and others is. And that almost makes up for all the times that we miss. How would you encourage people to have that one onion moment, to have that one onion moment where they're looking at it and saying, wow, this is, this is spectacular. How do, how do you help them find the wonder, Kendall? Yeah, I mean, I love, and I love teaching bread baking as the means to find that wonder that In my workshop, my Bake and Pray workshop, we learn quite practically how to bake a loaf of bread. But in the process, we talk about the ways that bread is woven into the narrative of Scripture. We talk about the chemistry of the wheat itself and what happens inside the wheat when uh, it's ground into flour and then water is added to that flour. The chemical changes that happen inside and the tension that is built and the ways that tension provides structure and strength to our dough. And in the process, we look at what does this bread itself teach us about God and teach us about the church and our lives and community. 
And so I think if you ever have the chance to take one of my workshops or to to do a bake and pray workshop or to read my my bake and pray book where I talk you through kind of how to really pay attention in that process of baking bread. I think that is kind of my favorite way to help people into that that onion type moment. And it won't be something that you can think about at the forefront of your mind every single time you bake bread or every single time you eat it. But I do hope it creates this slight shift in your relationship to bread that might open your eyes a little bit more and and open your your taste buds a little bit more to what is happening in this bread that God is offering you at the communion table every time you partake. And I'm fighting, I mean, I'll be honest, I am fighting this temptation right now to make a Wonder Bread joke. Um, I'm not going to, but if I did, it would have been hilarious. It would have been like the best dad joke that you heard all day, but I'm not going to do it. And so I'm, but I'm kind of thinking about this idea that you said about really paying attention because I feel like that's the secret sauce here, right? Like paying, paying attention, living consciously, being aware of what we're experiencing because we sometimes phone it in. Sometimes we're just, we're coasting. But in those moments, I've found, like when I first got my HelloFresh subscription, again, HelloFresh, feel free to send us money, all the money, or just free food. I'll take that. <laughs> but when I first started, it slowed me down. It made me think about everything more. Because I mean, when you use that, you're using every part of the scallion. You're cooking the bulb. You're slicing the shoot for garnish. You, you're you using everything. And they're all about making aiolis. I mean, you're making all sorts of aiolis with HelloFresh. Like, even if it doesn't need aioli, like, it's like, <laughs> make an aioli for these mashed potatoes. I'm like, do they really need? Yes. I'm like, okay, get the mayo, you know? And it it was it was great, though, because... With every step of preparing my food, I felt more appreciative because when I just consume food or buy it at a restaurant, I'm just thinking about my need. I'm not thinking about other people. When I'm making my food, I'm thinking about myself. I'm present in a moment. I'm thinking about all the little ingredients that are part of this recipe. And then I'm thinking about the people I'm going to feed with it. And so what do they like? And should I put a little bit more of this in there? Because I know that this person has a passion for that. And I think that idea of slowing down, not only at the dinner table, but also at the communion table can be helpful. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so often our churches treat our lives as though what matters most is what happens in our minds, that, that our faith is about what we believe and what we think and that the bulk of our faith happens in our heads and what happens in our brains. And maybe that moves into action when we think about how we care for our neighbors or how we care for the poor. But very rarely do we take it into how we live out the day-to-day rhythms of our lives and, and how we cook and how we eat and how we, how we observe God's creation and care for God's creation. But we were created in human bodies in this created world that God created and called good and that mirrors God's goodness in, in all over the place. And so we, I think our faith is incomplete if we are not taking the time to really pay attention to 
what God teaches us through the material world and taking the time to really pay attention to how we live in our bodies and navigate the world through our bodies. And that our faith is not just something that happens in our minds and that what matters most is not just what we think and what we believe and how we sort of connect with God or or pray to God in this cerebral sense, but in the very material sense of how we um, navigate the world and then in turn engage in community, both with our our human friends and neighbors and family and community, but also our non-human neighbors and community. You know, the the animals and the plants that that um, that we rely on to survive. One of my friends who is an Episcopalian rector. When I first met him in New York, he knew I was at a Baptist church. And so the first thing he said is, it's the grace of God through ordinary means. And he was talking about communion. He was talking about the Eucharist. He was talking about this sacred meal. But again, he was focusing on that ordinary thing. And I love how you're talking about how we can think ourselves silly. Like we can be like, (laughs) We're so focused, and I think it's important. I think it's important to have a healthy orthodoxy. I do think that's important. But there's also that idea of orthopraxy, that right doing. And I think it's the doing in the mundane things. It's, it's how are we having meals together? What are our daily tasks? And how are we connecting with God and each other in those? And you're not always going to hit it out of the ballpark, but I love how you are showing people that, yes, you can think, but like, let's look at the example of communion. Jesus is saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for your sins. That's important because he's actually interacting with what he's eating and he's showing us something there. And so you've made this career shift. You now are the founder and executive director of the Edible Theology Project. What is your goal? What is your goal for churches, for individuals? What are you trying to help them experience? At its most basic, trying to help churches eat together more regularly. This practice of sharing meals together has long been a hallmark of Christian worship. From the early church throughout, you know, every tradition all over the world has the ways that these communal meals have been central to the life of the church. And I think that's a significant part of what we're called to do as a church is to share our lives together in large part through sharing meals together. And in the last you know, couple of decades, as our lives, especially here in America, have gotten so busy, we sort of treat the community aspect of church, these shared meals aspects of church as kind of a a like handy, helpful byproduct, but not really the heart of what it means to be the church. And my goal is to help churches see, no, actually, this practice of eating together and sharing our lives together is the immediate response to this meal that God gives us, the communion table that God gives us. The sort of response to that is to then share our daily meals together, to eat together and live in community together. And so our, our main goal, our primary program is this curriculum called Worship at the Table, where we are helping small groups and Sunday school classes to look at stories of meals in scripture and understand what it is that God is doing through and in the table. And then to, as they more, more deeply appreciate what God is doing around the table, to then think about how their own community can live into these rhythms of eating together as a regular part of their life together. 
One of the things I tell students when I'm working with them, if you are engaging someone who's experiencing homelessness, someone who's down on their luck, and you see that they don't have many material possessions, at least none that you recognize, instead of throwing money at them, I ask, like, what would it look like to have communion with them? What would it look like to really share a moment with them? And so I'll always encourage people to get something simple like a Nutrigrain bar and get two of them. And because everyone, when they, they hear this, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll just give them Nutrigrain bars. And I'm like, no, like, people can be fed at a lot of places. There are a plethora of organizations in every town and city that will work to meet that need. But you know what people don't experience? They don't experience community. They don't experience communion. And so when you sit down with them with that Nutrigrain bar, you take out a second Nutrigrain bar and you eat with them and you share a moment. It's little, not perfect, but what I want to teach them is that there is something that happens over a shared meal. Mm -hmm. And I love how you're like, well, our goal at Edible Theology is just to get people eating together. Kendall, did you grow up going to Wednesday night suppers? Was that a part of your religious tradition? It was, yeah. We at at my church when I was in elementary school, it was always pizza. <laughs> our church, our church did pizza between choir and Awanas. And my family actually, we my parents were very, very health conscious and we did not eat much dairy or meat at all, and very few grains actually, other than homemade bread. So we were never allowed to participate in the pizza. We had to bring our own salad. And so I, I think this is part of my sort of Part of maybe what what drives my desire to see people eat together and really celebrate the goodness of all kinds of foods is that I I my church did have this rhythm of eating together, but also I was not able to participate in it fully. <laughs> and all I wanted was a slice of that delicious pizza. You're like you robbed me of pizza, mom. <laughs> That's right. You robbed me of this experience. But it's funny though, even how it's these little things that key us into these ideas of wait a minute, it's a simple thing, eating mm -hmm. together. But how many of us don't do that? I used to laugh off the Wednesday night suppers. I hated Wednesday night suppers. <laughs> but, but now I'm like, it gives me an opportunity to share a moment with people that I may not share moments with if yeah. I take the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is to live in community is uncomfortable sometimes. It is, there's the awkward small talk. It is, it is a waste of time. I would say waste in air quotes and that there's, there's a lot of time that it takes to participate in these things. It doesn't feel productive. And so it feels like, you know, this is just an inconvenience to share our lives with other people in this way. And yet we see the ramifications when these points of sort of shared life are are removed that that we have this deeply busy culture we have this mental health crisis we have this crisis of loneliness we have this crisis of political and cultural polarization that these are all the ramifications of us not sharing the rhythms of our lives together in these really simple and mundane ways and yet somehow we think that that awkward small talk and the time it's going to take is is what is a waste when in reality it is the groundwork for being able to live in community with people who are different than us and have these needs for community and connection met in very simple, mundane ways. And I think it's remarkably self-aware because you're realizing that, yeah, you need food. 
<laughs> realizing that need, that is a need. But you also need people. You need mm-hmm. that community. You need those silly, mundane conversations that you don't think are going anywhere. But in three years, when you have a crisis, and then all of a sudden you realize, this person who's very close to me, I met them across the table, and I just started with, hi, what are you eating? Are you a big fan of macaroni and cheese? That's a lot of hot sauce. I mean, the food has its own flavor. <laughs> what? Why do you need so much hot sauce? But that mundane conversation led to something beautiful. And I love how that's your passion. I love how you're, you're doing that through the Edible Theology Project. In these last moments, Kendall, how would you encourage people to connect the communion table to the dinner table? I, I think as we've been talking kind of over the last hour, that when we slow down and pay attention to the miracle of food being brought to us at all, then we also kind of can see the the miracle that is exemplified in the communion meal, that this death and resurrection of Jesus is what makes possible kind of our our shared meals and the the sort of revival of our communities in around the the daily table, that what God has done, what God is doing at the communion table is kind of this epitome of what is happening at all of our daily tables and that the the unification of God's people throughout time and throughout history that's happening at the communion meal, that is also happening on a small scale every single time we gather with other people to eat. Like anything written by Capon, there's that simple aspect of what you're saying. But then when you pull that thread, it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and it leads us to the thing that we need the most, and that is community with God and others. Kendall, thanks for being on the MercyCast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.